was thinking about this text and thinking about that question that we often ask young people, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you hear a lot of answers from young people, what they want to be. One answer I'm yet to hear is, I want to be an influencer. Now, I heard a few laughs. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and be thankful that you don't know what an influencer is. They exist on social media sites like Instagram and TikTok, of which I'm not familiar with. And their whole job is to influence people and get people to buy things. My wife was educating me on this a little bit recently, showing me that you can view decorations of a room that maybe an influencer has posted. And if you like the vase or the lamp, you can see exactly where to buy it. Or you can see the outfits that these influencers have, and you can immediately go and buy those same outfits. Social media has allowed lots of people to be influencers, not just famous people. You do have some famous people like athletes, but now even lower tier athletes can be influencers. You got decorators, actors and actresses, politicians, business people, creatives, all kinds of people. One article I read said the influencer industry is going to reach $200 billion by 2032. We are influenced by others, and businesses know it, and so they invest in it. Who is influencing you? You know, we might think of obvious people like our parents or those who raised us have had a significant influence on us. And I remember taking my son on a father-son trip a couple years ago and going through his list of friends and asking, what kind of influence do each of your friends have on you? positive and negative. We, we ought to be thinking about who influences us. Is it a positive influence? Is it a negative influence? And who should be influencing us? And some of you adults might think this sounds very elementary. This is for children. Uh, peer pressure is a, a thing in, in school. But have you ever considered how the culture influences you in tremendous ways? How often we eat what we eat, what type of clothes we wear, the cars we drive, what's culturally appropriate to say. I've been wrestling in the last couple years with questions like, why do we work five days a week? Where did that come from? God started with six, people were pushing four. Who decided there's a 40-hour work week? I mean, the number of things that we do just because that's how they're done is staggering when you think about it. And I remember living in Texas, I went there for college for four years, and I came home, and for one to two years, everybody said I had a southern accent. You just pick up and do the things that people around you do. And I think biblical history is pretty important in understanding the influence that the world has on us as people of God. We, we can open in Genesis and we see, God created man in his image perfect. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. And from there, corruption begins, and they have Cain and Abel. And in Genesis 4, Cain goes and he murders Abel. And shortly thereafter, 
Cain begins to have children, and there's a non-godly line form, and we see people like Lamech and, and polygamy. And right after that non-godly line, then uh, comes the, the godly line, and, and God allows Cain, or, or excuse me, God allows Adam and Eve to have Seth and to replace Abel. And it says um, things like, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And we see people like Enoch who walked faithfully and were taken up. It's ultimately from that godly line that Noah is born. But before that, Genesis 6, we see the godly line and the non-godly line, and they start to blur together. The non-godly line begins to influence the godly line, and God gets incredibly frustrated and decides he's going to wipe out the people from the earth because his people are no longer set apart. And so he literally wipes out the entire earth except for Noah and his family. We see this theme throughout the Old Testament over and over it jumped out at me again two years ago when Brad was preaching through the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. The opening verses mention how God loves Jacob, but he hated Esau. And he goes on to say he wants his name great among the nations. And the way he wants his name great is for his people to be set apart entirely. But he gets frustrated in chapter 2 because he says, People do not listen and resolve to honor my name, and I am going to curse them, and I'm going to rebuke their descendants, their line. And we see more mixing in Malachi, where God is frustrated that people are abandoning the wife of their youth, and they're marrying also people from the non-godly line, people that are, are worshiping foreign gods. And God ultimately says in chapter 3, verse 7 of Malachi, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. And he goes on in that chapter to say, basically, if you return to me, he says, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who who do not. And you flip the page in Malachi to Matthew, and it immediately starts with the genealogy to Jesus, the, the godly line. There's this theme throughout Scripture. God is tired of God, his godly people mixing with non-godly people, looking exactly like them with how they live their life. And here we are in 1 John studying church basics. We're going to be talking about the righteous and the wicked because this is a topic that has been around since the beginning of time that the church struggles with. The church tends to look often more like the world rather than set apart looking the way that God wants them to look. And sometimes we hear in the church, that we should blend in with the culture, embrace the culture, and in order to reach people. But I want to suggest, and I think Scripture suggests, that the more different we are from the culture, the bigger the blessing we will be on the culture and the, and the world. So we're going to be diving into this in 1 John and looking at who is influencing you, 
who influences the, the people of God and how do we discern that and discern the difference. So let me open us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word. And I pray you would open our eyes to see today what you have to share with us. The great love that you have for us and how you want our lives to look completely different from the world. And we just pray in your name. Amen. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John if you have not already. And let me start with a little bit of context. Brad mentioned this verse last week, but 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a theme throughout 1 John, of knowing that you have eternal life, knowing that you are genuinely saved. And we're going to be hitting on that a little bit again. And let me just start by giving the, the text outline. I've, I've titled this, Do Not Be Deceived. And we're going to talk about the deception specifically between the righteous and wicked or the people of God and the, um, the people of, of the devil. But here's the text outline for what we're going to be covering today. Starting in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, we're going to look at the children of God. And there's going to be three everyone statements. The statement in this text is, everyone who abides in him practices righteousness. And then we're going to jump into the next paragraph, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, again talking about the children of God. And it says, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. Then we'll go into to verses 4 through 6, and it's going to switch over to the children of the devil. And it's going to make another everyone statement. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And then last, in verses 7 to 10... <clears throat> going to be what I call kind of the discernment section, and it's going to say, little children, do not be deceived. So let's jump in, starting in verse 28. It starts off with, and now. Let me just recap where Brad has been. Brad has mentioned the prior text, there's three grids to evaluate your life in. There's the morality test, how do you respond to sin, how do you respond to obedience in Christ. Then he preached on the love test. Has there been a genuine regeneration in my heart? Do I supernaturally love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Last week he talked about the truth test. What do we believe? What do we confess? We look at our profession, what we say we believe, and also our perseverance. Today you might say we're moving into a fourth test. Call it the practice test. Except it's not like a practice test in school that doesn't really count. This one actually counts. It's a test of what are your practices in life. So that's where we are and now. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
abide in him, back to verse 28. This is going to be the first of several in him statements. You'll see in him written again and again. I want you to pay attention to in him. Brad last week described abiding as kind of standing firm in God, and I want to build on that to suggest um, when you think of abiding, think of remain in fellowship. Remaining in fellowship with with God. And, and the key to remaining in fellowship here, abiding, we can see is also in verse 25. If you know that he is righteous, you actually know somebody that you fellowship with. So knowing, knowing God is, is going to be key. And how do we know him? We specifically know that he is righteous. If you know he's right, you want to stand firm with who he is. But some more things should, should come from this. We, we see that he's going to be coming again. So the one who is righteous and holy is going to be returning a second time. Now, if we've been abiding in God, there's going to be a great benefit. We're going to have confidence in his coming. But if not, we're going to shrink in shame at his coming. And as I was preparing this sermon, I had this thought that I didn't even know, I, I had this memory I, I didn't even remember, where I must have been eight years old or younger, because I distinctly remember it in the first house I lived in, and my parents went off, I don't know where they went, but they, I was with my siblings, and we were watching TV, and I was instructed to get in bed by 8.30, and I did not really heed my parents' instructions uh, for that. And I remember watching TV, and all of a sudden, I heard the garage door open up. And I immediately jumped up and sprinted upstairs to get upstairs as fast as I possibly could to slide into bed, hoping they would have no idea. They're not here today. So. <laughs> God's coming is going to be a whole lot more challenging than that. Not abiding in the Lord, you will shrink in shame. In verse 29, we have the first everyone statement that I mentioned earlier. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There's going to be several everyone statements, as I mentioned, and we're also going to get into some no one statements later and we, we we see here everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him i often get described as john's son or carla's son and i often hear people describe others as boy he's a spitting image of his father or boy she's beautiful like uh, her mother have you ever noticed how much kids just look like their parents and they act like their parents. I mean, even sports teams. seems like nine times out of ten, kids like the sports teams that their parents like. And, and we get the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And as I get older, the bigger blessing and maybe the scary reality is that one starts to act more and more like their parents. And again, my parents aren't here today, so. Jamie says, I have an adventurous spirit like my parents. I like to plan like my mom and do business like my dad. And 
Jamie, my wife, she has a joyfulness like her mom, and she can fix things a whole lot better than I can, like her dad. And both Jamie and I like hosting like our parents do. And currently, my parents and in-laws still love me, so I won't be disclosing any of the less favorable practices <laughs> that we emulate of them. But you are a child of God, and a child of God, their practices ought to look like that of their heavenly Father. So how should our behavior look? It should look righteous. We should be practicing righteousness. If you know that God is righteous, and, and he is, you will practice righteousness. That's an amazing statement. The more you know God, the more your practices will look like him. So the key to practicing righteousness is abiding or fellowship in God. Sanctification is a really difficult thing, yet it's so simple. It's difficult because we tend to strive after our own power to practice righteousness. Have, have you ever had a habitual sin, maybe foul language or lust or gossip or lying or anger, impatience? How, how do you go about resolving that? Every time we usually feel guilty, we promise not to do it again, and then you potentially set up boundaries for yourselves. But based upon this text, let me suggest to you something different. Let me encourage you to focus on knowing God, fellowshipping with, with God. The key to righteousness is abiding in God. I would recommend you prioritize that. Prioritize the word of God, which is where we hear from him, and prayer, where we speak back to him. That's how you would communicate. Are you a child of God? Do you practice righteousness? Do you know God? Let's move on to the next paragraph, one to three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That first word, see, is an important one. We need to actively take time to see and look at God's love. If you know me, I love the theme of sight in the, in the scriptures. It's, it's everywhere. But it also doesn't just say, see the love the Father has given to us, but what kind of love? And what kind is it? The kind that a father has for their child. A good father loves their child for all time, through all circumstances. There really isn't anything that gets in the way of a child loving, or of a father loving their child. And I like how it says, has given to us. Notice, given is past tense. He gave this in the past. The Father gave us his love. We, we didn't earn it. The gift is not something that we earn. We don't earn our status as children of God. Instead, it is his love that does. In fact, if we earned it or if salvation was up to us, it could be lost. We'd need to keep re-earning it 
we'd need to keep re-sacrificing because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough if, if we need to earn it. We would have reason to boast in our efforts. But God gave us this incredible love. And it, and it says the reason the world did not know us is that it did not know him. This is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree again. If we're like God in our behavior and people do not know God, they do not know us. And, and the, the tenses are really interesting there. The reason the world does not know us present is that it did not know him past. What is it talking about? I think it's talking about Christ and when he came. First John opens up discussing how we saw him, touched him, how Christ actually came. We, we need to see the love of Christ, but let's also not overlook the love of the Father in this text. I think sometimes when we think about Christ dying on the cross, we can omit the Father. I was sharing this with a, a small group recently. But if, if you're a parent, just ask yourself, if your child had to get executed or you, what would you pick? What would be harder? I think it would be much harder to send my child and watch my child get executed. I mean, the incredible love of the Father is something that we don't often think about when we think about Christ dying on the cross. In this text, you're going to see the word along the scene theme and in verse 2 appeared and appears and see again beloved we are God's children now and what we will be is not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is now being like him this doesn't mean we're going to be a deity of course we are not like him in that way but I think of Ephesians 5 1 which says therefore be imitators of God as beloved children we would want to imitate his righteousness, imitate his, his love that's laid before us. And finally, in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What leads to purity? You might think it's things like boundaries or promises to yourself of future behavior choices or accountability. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. In fact, I think a lot of them are good, but I am suggesting that all of these without the Lord completely fail. And I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of Hebrews 12, looking at Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, I, I look at that and I think, man, that's, that's hope. The, 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 the joy ahead. And, and ask myself, do I have that joy and that hope in the 
future. And really, where, where does this come from? I, I think there's kind of a, a chain here. We see God's love, and that leads to hope, and, and that leads to purity. And I almost went um, love, hope, faith here in, in some sense, but let me try to, try to um, practically explain maybe in some tangible ways, how hope leads to purity. Because if, if you think about purity, I, I don't think our first instinct is to, to go to hope and increasing our hope in, in life. But think about sins like the love of money. Money is actually quite worthless compared to our eternal riches. Hope literally changes the value of money. And, and to be more specific, hope in eternity devalues money. Or complaining, how much impact do our temporary circumstances really make in light of eternity? Hope literally devalues our temporal circumstances. Or loving our enemies, incredibly hard, difficult to do. But whatever is taken from you is so temporary, if you have the opportunity to bring the love of Christ to others. Hope disadvantages our earthly self on behalf of our eternal future. Hope purifies our mind on valuing eternity and, and devaluing the temporary. It gives us a, a complete purity of, of thought, and it was really convicting and preparing just how little time I spend in hope and dwelling on hope. So let's recap those first two paragraphs on the children of God. There's several similar statements in both paragraphs. We have the two everyone statements. Everyone who abides in him practices righteousness. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. Abides in him, hopes in him. We learn God is righteous. God is pure. The reward of this coming is confidence. The reward of this coming is that we will be like him. Now we're going to transition to verses 4 to 6. Away from... God's people. Let's read it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. First thing we need to do is understand lawlessness we have our third everyone statement everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness and i find when discussing the law today it can be a very challenging concept that people don't spend a, a lot of time thinking about and so let me try to give just a brief overview and then brad will cover it sometime later and and uh in more detail so first, the, the purpose of the law. I like how John Calvin defines the purpose of the law. He gives us three purposes of the law. First, it's to serve as a mirror to reveal our sin. And I'm not going to go through these uh, scripture texts, so if you want to uh, write them down or take a picture, go for it. It's to serve as a restraint upon evil in the world, and it's to serve as a means to reveal that which is pleasing to God. Now, some people say, David... Isn't the law an Old Testament thing? 
Well, if it was, then how could sin be defined as lawlessness or less law or no, no law? We would all be without sin. So we need to dive into understanding law and what John means here a little bit better. Because I think without a proper understanding of this, we actually devalue the gospel, uh, which we're going to uh, get to, and it, and it comes in, uh, in verse 5. So really, what is the law? There's three types of laws, and we need to be able to segment these properly to understand the scriptures. There's the ceremonial law. Think of sacrifices. We don't sacrifice anymore. God, Jesus, was the ultimate sacrifice. There's civil law, specific regulations given to uh, Israel for the societal order. And then last, we have the moral law, universal laws reflecting God's unchangeable character. And we're going to be focusing on the moral law because I think this is what 1 John is driving at. And the moral law is really for all people for all time. What is the summary of the moral law? Flip to Matthew 22. And we're going to look at an uh, interaction with Jesus here. Matthew 22, verse 36 Or starting in verse 5, one of 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. To sum that up, there's two commands, love God and love people. And we see this theme in 1 John. I'm going to actually hit, it, hit on it here later as I preach. Brad's already covered verses that cover these commands, but if you want to see one coming in the future, 1 John 4, verse 21 says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, there's the first commandment, must also love his brother. There's the second commandment. This is what we're talking about with the moral law, loving God and loving others. We've always had to do these things, and they didn't go away. Matthew 5 actually forever changed my view in understanding the law. If you want to flip to Matthew 5 with me, we can see how Jesus treats, treats this as well. <clears throat> starting in verse 17 he says do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished to make it clear, he says, I did not abolish it, and not a dot or an iota will go away. And in the middle of that, he says he fulfilled it. So we need to understand what fulfilling versus abolishing is, because he did one and, and not, not the other to properly understand that sin is lawlessness. And we typically, uh, when the law gets brought up, usually you'll hear somebody suggest legalism um, pretty quickly thereafter. And usually in legalism, the first thing that's mentioned by somebody is we don't want to add 
to the, the law. And that is a form of legalism, but I want to point out another form of legalism that Jesus tends to hit on, and it's more tied into what 1 John is driving at, and that is actually lowering the bar of the law or, or less law. So we read on Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying your righteousness must be better. You better not lower the bar of these laws or lessen what is actually required. And he goes on to make his point in verse 21. He, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's taking the law of do not murder, and he's not just holding it at physically killing somebody. He's actually raising it up and saying, even if you've committed anger, you violated the law. And he does the same pattern with lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, until he gets to what I call the knockout punch in uh, verse 48 of Matthew 5. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I like to think of checkmate after that. And if you don't read that and see your sin, you're not reading very carefully to see what is actually required. Sin is lawlessness. And anything short of the perfection of your father, sin is falling one bit short of the command, you shall love God. Falling one bit short of the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And and that helps us understand 1 John 1.8, which says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We know we have sin. And the, and the reason I took time to do that, I believe a high view of God's expectation for us is so important in order to value what Christ did on the cross for us. And that's why the next verse in 1 John 3, verse 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. When we see God's expectation is perfection, we should immediately crumble and think we need a Savior. We, we are not there, and, and, and the next verse should be an incredible relief to us. And in this time, the word appeared is past tense. Before, we were talking about maybe God coming back in the future. This time, we're talking about Jesus appeared in the past. And I think as we go on in this, there's an in him in here. In him, there is no sin. We had abide in him, hope in him, but now as we're talking about children not of the Lord, we have what is not in God, and what is not in him is, is sin. This should also help us understand why Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. I want you to look at the words fulfill 
and lawless. Fulfill versus lawless. You have full versus less. We, 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 we cannot carry out the full law. We fall short, and that is why he came to fulfill it on our behalf. And Christ's righteousness and his love are clearly critical elements to fulfilling the law. Let's move on to verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We have a couple no one statements. The first one, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, I believe corresponds to the everyone that we find in verse 29. Everyone who is righteous in verse 29 versus no one who sins. And we see in verse 28, little children abide in him versus here, no one who abides in him. So we're starting to see a contrast if we go back and pair it. The, the second no one statement, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I believe this no one statement corresponds to the everyone statement in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And, and notice, notice the paragraph of 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has. What will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we shall see him as he is. And here in verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him. And it all says, or known him. Back to verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So we can see, as we've talked about the, the children of God in two paragraphs, now we're talking about the uh, children not of the Lord and, and making a comparison and, and contrast here in verse 6. So let's move on here to the next section. Seven to the end. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the first command, let no one deceive you. Let's talk about deception a second. Sometimes we think sin and righteousness, black and white, and that's true, but usually deception can't have such a great contrast. It needs to look a little bit uh, like something good. I mean, think of poisoning somebody. You know, a little bit of poison goes in the drink or a little bit of poison goes in the food. Most of that food or drink is good substance, but there's just a little bit in there that begins to corrupt. We need to think, how are we deceived today? We we like to be 
I, I would say we are deceived in, in how we think often about salvation. And we, we like to believe we're saved just because we believe in God. Men like to tell us that our faith can be an intellectual thing and doesn't need to lead towards any sort of obedience, but James 2 tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. Now let's be clear, we are saved by faith alone and not by works of righteousness. And, and we often have seen a false gospel preached, faith plus works equals salvation. You need to have faith, but you need to do this, 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 and this. And it's easy to respond to that with the equation just faith equals salvation. But I want to suggest a different equation that you've, maybe some of you have, have heard before. It's not my invention, but faith equals salvation plus works. Your faith will result in a changed life. But we're often deceived into thinking that our conduct doesn't matter. We believe Christ saved us, but really doesn't need to be the Lord of our lives. And we really need to walk carefully, even in the church, to examine ourselves and examine others around us. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I'm concerned today, right here in Faith Bible Church, people listening to this, people who intellectually agree that Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins, but intellectual agreement is not necessarily faith. Spurgeon is quite blunt in his comments on this passage. Let me read this quote. He says, Well, labor under no mistake, sir. He that practices sin is of the devil. It is no use making excuses and apologies. If you are a lover of sin, you shall go where sinners go. If you, who live after this fashion, say that you have believed in the precious blood of Christ, I do not believe you, sir. If you had a true faith in that precious blood, you would hate sin. If you dare to say you are trusting in the atonement while you live in sin, you lie, sir. You do not trust in the atonement. For where there is a real faith in the atoning sacrifice, it purifies the man and makes him hate the sin which shed the Redeemer's blood. It's a difficult thing to read. The reason we know this is true is it it also says the Son of God came, in verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. Sanctification does happen. Let's move on to the final deception, verses 9 and 10. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we have no one born of God makes a practice of sinning versus whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And and I hope you picked up on it. The greatest and second greatest commands there in verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. How do we practice righteousness? 
We actually love God. We abide with him. We fellowship with him. Because he is righteous, we become righteous. And then the second greatest command, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And we should remember that the bar is so incredibly high for these. How do we achieve it? And of course, we only achieve that by the power of God. And I, I, something here that's re- really interesting in verse 9, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. What does that mean, God's seed abides in him? I think it's talking about the Holy Spirit abiding in you and sanctifying you. And we actually see God interwoven throughout this entire text look back at chapter 3 verse 1 see what kind of love the father has given to us so we see that the father loves us in verse 1 we see in verse 5 and there's more mentions but verse 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin we see christ died for us and here in verse 9 No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. We see the Spirit lives in us. What is the power of practicing righteousness? It is God. And it is the entire Trinity. The Father loves us, the Son died for us, and the Spirit lives in us. Later today, we're going to be taking communion. And as you prepare for that, I want you to contemplate who's the largest influence in your life. You know the church answer is God, but let's face the truth. If you don't face the truth, you're going to have to pay the consequences. And God desires to be the biggest influence in your life. God desires fellowship with you. And for you to fellowship with him. And he wants you to see the love that the Father has for you as a child of God. That the Son came to die and to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil. And that the Holy Spirit came to abide in you. That you would not continue in habitual sin. Let me pray. Lord. We ask for you to work in us to be the power to practice righteousness. We know we cannot do it of our own accord. We don't have the ability. We're sinful. And we desperately need you. I pray, Lord, we would not just know that intellectually, but that it would go down to our heart, that we would desire to fellowship with you, to abide in you, to to be with you, and to see and understand the great love that you have for us, and to see that you died on the cross for our sins, and that you want to walk with us and to transform us. And we know as believers, we will still sin just like the greats did in the scriptures. But we also know, Lord, as we read this text, that you continue to conform us to be more and more like yourself if we truly know you and are saved. May that be us. May we know you, 
and seek you and desire you. We pray in your name. Amen.